Well, thank you and good morning, everybody. You know, it is such a pleasure for me, and I'll speak on behalf of uh, the other three gentlemen that I've come with. Uh, it is a real pleasure for us to come, and we're very pleased that you're here and that you've given up a sunny Saturday, which I understand isn't, isn't always so here in Scotland, but boy, we're so pleased that you're here, and I'm very pleased to be back. You know, I, I have been invited to speak places once, but to be invited back, that's a special treat. And uh, so I'm very grateful for it. And we have a great theme uh, for some of the teachings that we're going to do here today. And the general, the broader theme, is the theme of discipleship. So instead of sort of introducing and talking around it, uh, let me get right into it by asking you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And uh, why don't I do this? Why don't I read the text that I'm going to talk to you about this morning? It's going to be a familiar text, uh, and I hope that the familiarity of the text doesn't hinder what God wants to do with it in, in our lives. You know, sometimes that's the case, isn't it? A text seems so familiar to us that I, I wouldn't blame you if already in your mind some of you, well, I've, I know this, I've heard this before, and I, I just pray that God will help us to see it with fresh eyes here this morning. So, um, why don't I read the text, and, um, and then I'll pray. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, we pray now that you would bring um, your inspiration to our hearts and our minds. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the person and for the teaching and for the presence of Jesus in our midst. And we want to humble ourselves now under your word and under the presence of the living, resident Jesus in our midst. Say, please, Lord, teach us. Not just now with this first teaching, but all through the day. We submit our hearts and our minds to you for your instruction. Thank you, God. Thank you for this beautiful, wonderful privilege now. In Jesus' name, amen. Sermon on the Mount is very familiar territory for many Christians, and I hope it's familiar territory for you. Because I can think of no other passage that speaks more directly and more comprehensively in a few chapters about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now we're going to be developing that theme all throughout the day, but one thing I want you to keep in mind is that for a rabbi to have disciples was not an unusual occurrence in the first century when Jesus gathered his own disciples around him. The particular dynamic of how he gathered those disciples and who they were, there were aspects to that which were unusual, but the fundamental thing of a man having disciples was not strange. 
Now when Jesus did this, and when he spoke these words in the Sermon on the Mount, I believe that he was announcing not only to his twelve disciples, but to potential disciples. Because one thing that we find when we take a look at this word disciple in the New Testament, this word disciple in the New Testament is sometimes used in a narrower sense of the twelve disciples that followed Jesus. Other times it's used in a broader sense of those who would have an interest in Jesus, perhaps not the same as his officially designated disciples, yet people who wanted to learn something from Jesus and be his followers in a broader sense. You see, I believe that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught his disciples, the twelve, but then also a larger group of what we might call potential disciples. This is what it means to be a follower of me. When it says there in verse 1, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and in who was so seated, his disciples came to him. We shouldn't think that this means that Jesus went up on the mountain to get away from people. I don't believe so. You see, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it's very clear that a large multitude was listening to Jesus as he taught this. This was not a secret initiation for the twelve. This was a public proclamation. This is what it means to be my follower. Matter of fact, verse 1, notice, if you see there, that he seated himself, which was the customary posture for a teacher. My, how we've turned things around in the modern age. Here I am standing, and you all are sitting. In Jesus' day, the rabbi, the teacher, would sit, and his listeners would stand. But his disciples came near to him. Undoubtedly the twelve were there, but then also a larger group who wanted to listen to every word that Jesus said. And then look at what it says in verse 2. It says, He opened his mouth and taught them, saying... That's not just some vain uh, repetition when it says he opened his mouth and taught them. Actually, that's a figure of speech that was common in the ancient world, meaning he was going to project his words, he was going to project his speech. This was going to be a serious declaration, and he wanted people to hear. Now, you know, there have been times in uh, the history of the world where men and movements have made very strong declarative statements. Uh, in the history of my own nation, the United States, there's the Declaration of Independence. Uh, in English history, there's the Magna Carta. Uh, in more modern history, uh, Karl Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto. The, these documents that are intended to declare somehow, these are our principles, this is what we are about. I would say that in some way, this is Jesus' manifesto of the, what it means to be his disciple. You want to be a follower of me? Here it is, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I can't prove this, but neither can I be proven wrong on this. <laughs> it's just unprovable either way. But I believe that the Sermon on the Mount was essentially Jesus's, what you might call his stock sermon. In other words, when it says that Jesus went all about the towns and villages of Galilee preaching the kingdom of God, I think that fundamentally he preached what this message from the Sermon on the Mount was. He went around telling, this is what my kingdom is like. You want to be my follower? You want to be a citizen in my kingdom? This is what it's about. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. Friends, I also have to say that... Uh, it's a shame that we don't have the time today, or my, myself just in this morning session, to cover the entire Sermon on the Mount. 
It, it, it is so rich with meaning that it would take hours and hours of teaching to do this. But please understand, Jesus is presenting here this very clear call. This is what it means to be my follower. Not so much how to be saved. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, it really doesn't talk how you re- receive salvation, how you put your trust in Jesus. Rather, it's more a telling of this is what it means to be my follower. It's very interesting that uh, William Barclay, a uh, New Testament teacher, he pointed out that the verb translated in verse 2 as taught, it's in the imperfect tense. This is what William Barclay said. He said, therefore, it describes repeated and habitual action, and the translation should be, this is what he used to teach them. In other words, this was the common teaching of Jesus, that which he delivered to his disciples, and then he expected them to pass on to other people. And the Sermon on the Mount begins with the passage that I read to you in the beginning, this area known as the Beatitudes. These are to reflect both the character of his kingdom citizens, the character of a disciple, but then also the aspirations of the disciple. This is what we want to be. We want to be the kind of people that are reflected in the Beatitudes. And the character traits and the the aspects of, of person that are described in the Beatitudes, this is for everyone who's to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's not as if what we read in the Beatitudes is something like the list of spiritual gifts. Have you ever read through those lists of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians or Romans or such as that? And you say, oh, well, that's not me. That's not me. Oh, that's me. Oh, that's not me. And you pick maybe one or two that you think might fit your own personality. You know, that's not what the Beatitudes are to us. We don't say, oh, well, good, I'll take poverty of spirit. Yeah, that's me. Uh, but merciful? No, 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 that, that, that's just not me. And then, you know, we're not allowed to pick and choose. The whole list comes to us. And we're supposed to embrace it. There is no escape from our responsibility to desire every one of these spiritual attributes. If you meet someone who claims to be a Christian, and this doesn't describe them at all, you can fairly question their salvation. Now, if you meet somebody who claims to have mastered all this, you can fairly question their honesty. And so this is, this is in its ultimate, not fully achievable. But it should reflect the character and the aspirations of the disciple. So shall we make our way through this list of the Beatitudes? And again, I, I, I always tell, you know, I, I teach at a Bible college and I'll teach young people who want to be preachers or teachers. I always tell them, don't apologize for your message. Don't do that. It's just bad form for a speaker. But if I could, I apologize that we're going to move through this fairly quickly. Because any one of these verses could be the the, the source of of meditation and discussion for an extended period. But there's value in taking the group as a whole. So let's start now with verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Not just blessed will be, but blessed are in the present tense. There is a blessedness right now that comes to who? To the person who is poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? This is simply a confession that at our core, we are sinful and rebellious and utterly without moral virtue in ourselves to commend us to God. 
It's as if this. It's to declare yourself spiritually bankrupt before God. I am poor in spirit. And we know what it is when a person is bankrupt in a financial or economic sense. They don't have any assets. Their debts far outweigh their assets. Well, this is what it means to be poor in spirit. We understand that we don't have any spiritual assets in and of ourselves to recommend ourselves to God. Rather, we are bankrupt before Him. As a matter of fact, when Jesus used this word poor in spirit, He chose a particular ancient Greek word. There's one ancient Greek word that has the sense of the working poor. And do you understand what it means to be somebody of the working poor? I mean, for many of us, that's us at some time in our life. You, you live very much paycheck to paycheck. You live just very much on a very thin margin and you're just barely getting by. That, that might be called sometimes what people call the working poor. So there was one word in the ancient Greek language for the working poor. There's another word in the ancient Greek language for what you might call the poor poor. Those who had to beg. Those who had nothing and had to seek help from others. They had to beg or they could not live. That's the word that Jesus used here. For the truly poor. Friends, what's wonderful about this, blessed are the poor in spirit, is that everyone can start here. He doesn't say this, blessed are the pure. He doesn't say first, blessed are the holy, blessed are the spiritual, blessed are the wonderful. Because none of us, apart from God, are holy or spiritual or pure or wonderful. None of us start out that way. But everyone can be poor in spirit. The first point of contact that I have with God is not based on what I have. It's based on what I don't have. And we all don't have things in common. This is the first rung on the ladder. And it's high enough, or low enough maybe I should say, for every one of us to reach it. I like something I heard from uh, Martin Luther that he said. And I don't know if this is fully reliable because I, I read it on Twitter. And that's not exactly a great, but reportedly on Twitter, Martin Luther said this. Uh, not that Martin Luther tweeted it directly, that, that somebody quoted him. Yes, thank you. He said this quote, God created the world out of nothing, and as long as we are nothing, he can make something out of us. Well, that's what it means to be poor in spirit. Lord, I am nothing, make something out of me. And what does Jesus promise to those who are poor in spirit? He promises the kingdom of heaven. Because this kind of poverty is an absolute prerequisite for the riches of the kingdom of heaven. As long as you harbor illusions about your own spiritual resources, you will never empty your hands so that you can receive something from God. You know that you absolutely need His rescue in your life. And friends, this call to be poor in spirit is placed first as a challenge to disciples because that's where we all need to begin. You see, everything that follows in the Sermon on the Mount has to be put in the perspective that I do it as someone who is poor in spirit and must rely upon God for everything. Everything that follows in the Sermon on the Mount cannot be fulfilled in my own strength, but only by a beggar's reliance upon God. You see, no one mourns until they're poor in spirit. No one is meek towards other people until they have a humble view of themselves. 
And if you don't sense your own spiritual need and poverty, you're never going to hunger and thirst after righteousness. And if you have a too high view of yourself, you're never going to be merciful to others. All the rest of the Beatitudes, indeed all the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, it flows from this, being poor in spirit. But notice the second one. If you want to call it the second rung on the ladder, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, the ancient Greek wording here, which by the way, I, I don't want to deceive anybody. I'm no Greek scholar. I, I can barely make out you know, Greek words as I read them. and I'm certainly not a Greek scholar, but I, I'll readily admit I know how to read the guys who are Greek scholars. And the guys who are the Greek scholars explain to me that this word indicates an intense degree of mourning. It's not a casual sorrow over the consequences of our sin, but it is a deep grief before God over our fallen state. You mourn. You look at your own poverty of spirit. You look at the collective poverty of spirit in a community. You see the low spiritual condition of a society as well as your own low spiritual condition and you mourn. They mourn over sin and they mourn over the effects of sin and what is their reward? They shall be comforted. God allows this grief over sin and its effect into our lives not to be a permanent state. In other words, mourning is not to be a perpetual condition, but rather even in the midst of that mourning to be comforted. Now, I have to admit, you notice these first two? This is not going to gain a lot of applause from the culture at large. I want to be poor in spirit. I want to mourn. Much less so, even look at the third one. That's in verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now again, I have to refer to the Greek scholars that I know how to read. And they tell me that it's impossible to translate this ancient Greek word that's translated meek. It's impossible to translate it with just one English word. You know, when you go from language to language, sometimes you run into that. Sometimes you'll run into an idea that's represented by one word in another language that takes many words in another language to understand. But really, this idea behind meekness has the sense of a proper balance between anger and indifference. Of, of, of a powerful personality that's properly controlled. And it has the idea of humility. And what's interesting about this? The first two Beatitudes are mostly inward. Poverty of spirit is inward. Mourning is inward. Now, meekness is here. It's meant to show a willingness to submit and to work under proper authority. It's not the kind of person that's obsessed with their own rights, with their own privileges. Rather, oh, let me put it to you this way. It's one thing for me to admit my own spiritual bankruptcy. It's another thing for somebody else to tell it to me. But meekness will say, it is the truth even if someone says it to me. You see, these meek people, they're meek before God because they submit to His will and they conform to His word. But they are also meek before other people. They are strong, yet they are also humble, gentle, patient, and long-suffering. 
See, we can only fulfill this command to be meek when we're willing to control the desire for our own rights and privileges because we're confident that God watches out for us. This meekness is not a white flag of surrender that says to the world, trample all over me. No, it's an act of submission to God that says, you will be my protector. You will be my defender. I can trust in you to do that. God promises that He will not allow His meek ones to end up on the short end of the deal, so to speak. Instead, look at the promise. It's right there in verse 5. They shall inherit the earth. You know, it doesn't seem like the meek would be pushed out of the world, but they won't be. Instead, the answer is they will inherit the earth. Isn't it funny how the wolves devour the sheep... Yet there's a lot more sheep in the world than there are wolves, aren't there? I think that the sheep outnumber the wolves by by a long shot. And they continue to multiply. They feed in those green pastures. Now again, if we just consider this amazing challenge, I want you to think that in Jesus' day, as well as our own, but picture it in Jesus' day, how absolutely revolutionary this was. I am the Messiah. I am the true king of Israel. Let me tell you what my kingdom is like. If you want to be a part of my kingdom, you're going to be poor in spirit, you're going to mourn over your sinful condition, and you're going to be meek. You know what's fascinating about that, among other things? Is that the natural man finds no blessedness or happiness in any of those things. The natural man finds nothing to be happy about in spiritual poverty. The natural mind finds nothing to be happy about in mourning, nor do they find anything happy about in meekness. These things are only a blessing for a spiritual man, for a spiritual woman, those people who are new creatures in Jesus Christ. So here, what is it more to be a disciple of Jesus, a citizen of His kingdom? Look at it now in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. The kind of hunger that Jesus described in verse 6 is a profound hunger. It's not something that's satisfied by a snack. It's a longing that's deep and enduring. And in some sense, this hunger that He spoke about, it is never satisfied at all on this end of eternity. You see, this passion is real, just like hunger and thirst are real. Every one of us knows what it's like to feel hunger and thirst. It's a real passion. It's a natural passion. Friends, if a person has no appetite, if they have no hunger, no thirst, there's probably something medically wrong with them. A healthy person, a healthy Christian, hungers and thirsts after righteousness. It's an intense passion. It's a passion that sometimes can be painful. It's a passion that's a driving force. It's also, as I said before, it's a sign of health. And Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, hunger and thirst after righteousness. I must say, and, and I speak this from a familiarity with the spiritual landscape in my own land, Perhaps I could hope and trust that it's a better landscape in Scotland. Maybe healthier, I don't know. 
I don't want to presume to speak for your own spiritual landscape, but I'll just speak for my own. Where I see Christians hungering for many things. I see Christians hungering for power, for authority, for success, for comfort, for happiness. But I ask myself, how many of us hunger and thirst after righteousness? Where that is a longing for us. And by the way, remember that Jesus said this in a culture, in a day, when people really knew what it was like to hunger and thirst. Let's face it, in our Western world, very few of us know what it's like to truly be hungry. In other parts of the world they know this. They know what it's like to go days without food, not perhaps out of choice because you're trying to you know, reduce, or out of choice because you're, you're, you're fasting for some reason, but no, out of necessity. There's no food to eat, and that's why I'm hungry. Jesus spoke this to a time when people really knew what he was talking about. And so this hunger, this hunger to have a righteous nature, this hunger to be sanctified, this hunger to continue in God's righteousness, this hunger to see God's righteousness promoted in the world, Jesus promises to fill these hungry ones. And to fill them with as much as they can eat. Now on to verse 7. Blessed are the merciful... For they shall obtain mercy. You see, friends, when Jesus addressed his disciples and said, If you really want to follow me, let me make it very plain. It's almost as if Jesus is laying out a contract. You, you say you want to be my disciple. Okay, fine. Do you really know what you're getting into? Let me lay this out, what it means to be my disciple. It means to be poor in spirit. It means to mourn over your sin. It means to be meek and to hunger and thirst after righteousness. And it also means to be merciful to other people. Now, when Jesus spoke this, He spoke this to people who had already received mercy. It is the mercy of God to be emptied of your pride and to be brought to poverty of spirit. It's the mercy of God to mourn over your sinful condition. It's the mercy of God to receive meekness and to become Gentile. It's the mercy of God to be made hungry and thirsty after righteousness. Now, if you have received this mercy from God, you are now expected to show it to other people. And if you want mercy from others, especially from God, you should take care to be merciful to others. Friends, I remember this so remarkably about the life of King David in the Old Testament. Was not God extremely merciful to King David? Did not King David deserve the death sentence? Not only for his adultery with Bathsheba, but even more particular and more heinous was his murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. Did he not deserve the death sentence? Why did not God require Why did God show David such a remarkable mercy? I don't know if there's one answer to that question, but I know one aspect of the answer. God showed that mercy to David because David had showed such remarkable mercy to Saul. How many times did David spare Saul's life when he had every justifiable reason to take it? No, but God said of David, He has shown mercy, I will show him mercy. Then verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, 
for they shall see God. You know, the pure of heart receive the most wonderful reward. The pure in heart will enjoy greater intimacy with God than they could have ever imagined. Those polluting sins of covetousness and oppression and lust and the chosen deceptions of this world, they have a definite blinding effect upon us. But when God works His purity into our life, then we can see God. We can experience Him in a clearer way than before. And isn't it true? The heart-pure person can see God in nature in the way that another person can't. The heart-pure person can see God in Scripture in a way that another person can't. The heart-pure person can see God in his church family in a way that other people can't. I remember reading Charles Spurgeon once give an illustration in a message. He described that one time he was eating dinner at a hotel and he was talking with a fellow minister about spiritual things and and there's a gentleman sitting, you know, uh, at another section of the table and Spurgeon described and said he had a napkin tucked in his shirt, you know, so that he wouldn't spoil his shirt. And, 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 And Spurgeon described his face as being the face reflective of a man who had obviously done a lot of drinking in his life. And Spurgeon said that the man overheard the spiritual talk that Spurgeon was having with his associate minister. And then the man with the napkin and the reddened face said this. He said, I've been in this world for 60 years and I have never yet been conscious of anything spiritual. Spurgeon said, we did not say what we thought, but we thought that what he said was perfectly true. And that there are a great many more people in the world who might say the same thing that this man did. But he said, this only proved that he was not conscious of anything spiritual. Not that there was nothing spiritual that existed. Isn't it a strange thing? That God can be all around us and we not perceive it. The disciple perceives it. The disciple receives it because they have a measure of purity in their heart. And hopefully an increasing purity. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. You know, peacemakers here, it doesn't describe those who live in peace, but those who actually bring about peace. I think the most wonderful way that we bring about peace is by bringing people to Jesus Christ. Isn't that the most wonderful work of peacemaking that a person can do? Is bringing another person as a disciple of Jesus Christ. This brings peace. It brings greater peace between God and man in the world. And hopefully it brings greater peace between others in the world. In evangelism, we make peace between men and the God whom they have rejected and offended. Now, we commonly think of peacemaking on a human level, peacemaking between two people. We think of peacemaking as someone who sort of intercedes between two people who are, you know, in some kind of dispute. There's two men and they're arguing and I'll be the peacemaker. I'll find a way to negotiate a truce or an agreement between them. And yes, I can be blessed as the peacemaker. Do you want to know there's another way that this can be fulfilled? 
You can be the one in the dispute and decide that you will be the peacemaker. And decide, I will forgive, I will be restored, I will bear the cost upon myself. And there is a great blessing for that peacemaker. They, notice it, for they shall be called the sons of God. The reward of peacemakers is that they are recognized as true children of God. They share his passion for peace and reconciliation, the breaking down of walls between people. Now I want you to think about it. Think about what the world would be like with these kind of people in it. Let's say if there were ten times more people like this in the world, true disciples of Jesus Christ, poor in spirit, those who mourn over the sinful condition, those who are meek and gentle, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart, and those who are peacemakers. Those seven attributes, those seven character descriptions of what a true disciple is like, How wonderful would it be if there were more people like that in the world? And don't you think that if there were people like that in the world, that the world would give them such an honorable reception? Well, you're, you're the best among us. We need more people like you in our community. It's reflective of the spiritual insanity of humanity. But this is what happens to these people. Look now at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friends, these blessed ones are persecuted for righteousness' sake, And for Jesus' sake. Now may I mention this? Please notice, these blessed ones are persecuted for Jesus' sake and for righteousness' sake. They're not persecuted for their stupidity's sake or for their uh, pharisaical legalism's sake, but truly for Jesus' sake. You see, the character that's described in the Beatitudes is not valued by our modern culture. You know, nearest as I could see, they don't have a great big uh, Hollywood gala with uh, a red carpet and awards, handing out awards for most pure in heart. They're not recognizing an opening with an envelope with evening gowns and tuxedos. Uh, The most poor in spirit this year. Nobody cares, do they? Our world, the culture in general, looks upon these true disciples and often despises them. Can we bear this? I love Jesus. I love how honest he was. Coming right out front in his great manifesto of what it meant to be his disciple. He says, if you follow along this course, you're going to take a lot of persecution. The community will often reject you instead of embracing you. And it did not take long for these words of Jesus to ring true to his followers. Early Christians heard many enemies say all kinds of evil against them falsely for Jesus' sake. Do you know what Christians were accused of in the ancient world? In the ancient world, Christians were accused of cannibalism. 
Why? Well, because of a gross and deliberate misrepresentation of the practice of the Lord's Supper. Early Christians were accused of immorality because they would get together and have what they called a love feast and a private meeting. And oh, no, no, nobody really knows what happens at those love feasts. Christians were accused of revolutionary fanaticism because they believed that Jesus would return and bring a dramatic end to history. Christians were accused of splitting families because when one marriage partner or a parent became a Christian, there was often change and division in a family. Christians were accused of treason because they would not honor the Roman gods or participate in emperor worship. All of that was lies. Christians were not cannibals. They were not immoral. They were not revolutionary fanatics. They did not split families. And they were not guilty of treason. Yet, these lies were commonly told and believed about them in the early church. What should these persecuted ones do? Look at verse 12. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. The sense of that statement is to jump for joy. Now friends, isn't this just a little... I was going to say sick, but let's just say strange. How many? Yes, I'm jumping for joy because I'm rejected and persecuted. Do you see how counterintuitive this declaration of discipleship that Jesus gave was? There's an old Puritan commentator named John Trapp that I like to read. Trapp loves to list things. And in this particular passage, he listed several people who in fact did rejoice and were exceedingly glad when they were persecuted. He mentions a man named George Roper. He said that he came to the stake leaping for joy and he hugged the stake as he was about to be burned and he hugged it like it was a friend. And then there was a man he mentioned named Dr. Taylor. Dr. Taylor, he left and he danced a little as he was being carried to his execution. And when they asked how he was, he said this. He said, well, God be praised, Master Sheriff, never better, for now I am almost home. I am almost at my father's house. And then he described a man named Lawrence Sanders who with a smiling face, he embraced the stake of execution that he would be burned at. And he kissed the stake that he would be burned at. And he said, Welcome, cross of Christ. Welcome, everlasting life. Now, I don't know, does this seem beyond you and I? It seems beyond me. But don't you believe that God gives grace to his disciple in the moment to do such extraordinary things? We talk a lot about discipleship today. This is our theme. I have given you the barest of introductions. But I think I've really laid down a marker, so to speak. This is what being a disciple of Jesus is really all about. Will you accept it? Or will you reject it? Will you say... I will only take it if I can modify it enough to please my own inclinations. Or will you say, no. This is the truth of God. Jesus, I want to be your disciple. I want to be poor in spirit. I want to mourn over my sin. 
I want to be meek and gentle. I want to hunger and thirst after righteousness. I want to show mercy to other people. And so on through the list. Father, would you make us this kind of disciples? It would take a very superficial reading of this passage to make us think, yeah, I've got all that down. Rather, Lord, this challenges us, but it also draws us in in a dramatic way. And we simply say, Jesus, we want this. We need this. Would you please impress this upon our heart? We want to be your disciples, Lord Jesus. So make us the blessed ones spoken of this passage. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name and dedicate this day unto you. Amen.